please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, the throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, and sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion. And the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as of a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns, before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Some of you will no doubt know the term egalitarianism. It would probably be easier to understand under its older uh, pronunciation, which was equalitarianism. It was basically the idea, its basic import, is that all people are equal. The way that it manifested itself, um, especially in the history of our society, is a desire to uh, do away with the superior and inferior relationships that exist in 
a society. As a movement, we would have to say that it's complex, and in its complexity, it is part right and part misguided. It is right in a couple of very important regards that all people, Jew or Greek, male and female, of all different races are created in the image of God. And in that way, all men are very much the same. There's also an unhappy bit. Men and women, parents and children, black and white, are also all fallen, sinners and sinful. For those who are believers in Jesus Christ, all are beloved and um, co-sharers in a single redemption of Jesus Christ and all recipients of all redemptive benefits. Paul pointed this out to the Galatians. Ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. All adopted. All recipients of all his redemptive benefits. So far, we can affirm equalitarianism. But when we open the scriptures, we see that um, we cannot agree in the leveling of all social distinctions. And we cannot do away with God-ordained superior and inferior relationships. The husband and wife roles cannot be interchanged. The relationship between parents and children cannot be interchanged. And we could go on. Officers in the church and members, kings and subjects. These are God-ordained roles. And so in this sense, the egalitarian movement has been misguided. God has ordered society. Over against uh, egalitarianism, Perhaps you will um, come to agree with me, but I do believe that there has been a conservative overreaction to the egalitarian movement. To give you some, uh, some sense of some problems that I've seen firsthand and that I've lived with, we would say that the role of the wife is different than the role of the husband, and this is true. But there has been a conservative overreaction where there has been a design to constrict and overly restrain what we might call the proper function of the wife. Unbiblical limitations have been set upon her role. One of the ways that I have seen this manifest itself in our circles, if I might engage in a little self-criticism of our people. Uh, and by this I mean uh, our Presbyterian churches. 
we have had this in our midst more strongly in former times, not so much now, but it manifests itself in ways like this. There's no need to educate women. No need indeed. Now here, I don't speak of whether you go off to university or not. I, um, universities, frankly, are not very safe places for anybody just now. And so here, I'm not speaking uh, to that. I'm talking about the substance of education. But here you have this ethos. Uh, the husband and the daddy really needs to understand about things. Uh, the woman simply needs to be trained to wash dishes and do laundry and keep the house <coughs> and those sorts of things. Indeed. This in uh, our circles has also had a great show in face of piety. But is this the way that it is uh, according to God's word? Some things to consider. The woman is every bit as much in the image of God as the man. She has been created as an intelligent and rational creature. And are we going to say that the good and gifting God has given this great gift to no purpose and for no higher exercise than the understanding of the changing of a baby's diaper? Especially when we see all about us uh, examples where the Native intelligence of a woman excels that of a man. She's been given great gifts of intelligence. Are they to put, be put to no higher exercise than this? More narrowly. And this opens up the field of theology and the Bible. The woman needs to know God every bit as <coughs> as the man. I've told you this before, even with respect to officers and uh, church members. There is no Gnostic class. There's no special secret religious knowledge that belongs to me that does not also belong to you. And it's my job to go ahead and gather this knowledge and then to turn and to distribute that knowledge. But not to retain it for myself. Because you need to know God every bit as much as the officers. And the women need to know God every bit as much as the men. When you consider her particular calling in the life of the home, is it not true? And has it not almost always been true? That the woman does the lion's share of the education of the children? How important is her education now? It's every bit as important as the education of your children both male and female. She cannot give them something that she herself does not have. And to broaden things even further, we say that in uh, the relationship between a husband and wife, she is supposed to be a help, meet, or suitable to her husband in his particular calling. And she cannot help him in areas that she knows nothing about. Areas in which she is incompetent to act. We see here, if we take this idea seriously, that the woman's education needs to be every bit as broad as that of her husband if she's going to be a competent help to him indeed. The biblical mean, if I were to summarize all of this, is there is indeed a, a difference in the relationship between the man and the woman. And there have been bounds placed upon both. But the woman is to occupy all of her sphere without transcending it. 
And that's a difficult balance to be sure. But we do, uh, we do ourselves as a church and as families no great favor by unbiblically overly restricting. And this is an overreaction, I believe, to egalitarianism. We need to find the biblical way of relating, not simply react against bad social movements. Another way that this has manifested itself, and a little bit more to my purpose this morning, there are role distinctions in the church, and that is true enough. Egalitarianism has sought to level all of these distinctions as far as can possibly be done. Uh, but then, uh, what happens in Presbyterian circles? This has become one of the besetting sins of our people, I do believe. There is a, an overreaction that has led to a Presbyterian authoritarianism. You might, uh, if you get an opportunity, want to read Kevin Reed's little book on imperious Presbyterianism, which is a long history of abuses in this regard. It's as if uh, Presbyterianism, it, reacting against egalitarianism, uh, has said something like this. The best thing that I can do as a church officer for you, the people, is to let you know that I'm in charge and that egalitarianism is the wrong way to go. And the ministry ends up existing for its own self-promotion. It ends up existing for itself. When we open the pages of Scripture, we find that the ministry was designed for no such thing at all. Paul's words concerning the power of discipline. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed, and so on. 2 Corinthians 10.8 Why had Paul been given authority from the Lord? Not for his own self-aggrandizement, no, not for the destruction of the people or at their expense, but rather for their edification so that they might be built up in the Lord. Interestingly enough, um, uh, when you read the writings of Paul, there's usually only one situation in which it becomes necessary for an officer really to assert his authority. It's when his authority has been denied to the hurt of the denier. So you see here the reference is not to the minister and his perception of himself, but rather for the good of the other who is hurting himself by the denial of the authority, harming himself spiritually. Here are the words of Paul. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. It's a grief to the, to the officers to have this upset in the relationship. But it becomes unprofitable for you. Again, it runs contrary to edification. So now the officer is trying to edify you by getting you to listen to things that are useful to bring you up in Christ Jesus. You say, well, what does all of this have to do with our text? We have gone from the living creatures full of eyes to a discussion of church authority and egalitarianism. What does it have to do with their text? 
Well, just everything. Because in our text, we are being taught some very fundamental things about the ministry. And on a communion Sunday, this is not something that you will probably hear emphasized very much if you were to go around Reformed churches on a communion Sunday. But at the communion, I want you to note on this Lord's Day, and to remember it for future ones, that the officers also commune with you. It's a testimony not only of uh, our union and communion simply as believers, but you are also communing as members and office bearers. And so the health of your relationships in this regard is germane. And as we come to the Lord's table, we make a profitable use if we come seeking grace and strength so that the relationship between the officers and the people might grow and thrive unto mutual edification and growth in love. I say that the text is quite germane to all of this because you remember these uh, living creatures are portrayed as having, being full of eyes that look in both directions. They look to the throne. And as we said, the ministry, as the last time we were together, uh, the ministry is to be full of eyes looking back to the throne for its instruction because it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King and the head of the church, that gives the marching orders, not the officers. So they must have their eyes upon Him. What is His desire? for the activity of the church. How are we to be governed? How are we to worship? The throne makes those pronouncements. And so the living creatures are looking to the throne to receive their marching orders. But today I want to concentrate on the eyes that are directed in the other direction, which is toward the, uh, the people of God, here represented by the 24 priest kings, seated upon their thrones. But as always, um, I know that we might still feel like we're uh, uh, on a bit of uncertain ground. So we'll, we will ground our doctrine and our practice more broadly than just the image, although I do hope that the image will be useful so that you will remember these things and never forget them. These are powerful images that work their way into the mind that work their way uh, into the mind even of children. Lifelong lessons, things never to be forgotten. My first doctrine this morning is that the officers of the church are to be vigilant in the oversight of their charges. This is at least uh, part of the significance in the fact that they are full of eyes directed toward the people of God. They are vigilant in the oversight of God's people. But for that broader scripture grounding, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. This is one of those precious passages from Paul in which he discusses the variety and multiplicity of gifts that Jesus Christ gives to his church. And the idea is that each one who receives a gift, and everyone does, takes his gift, and he brings it back to the body. 
for the edification of the whole. So when we are given gifts, it's simply it's not simply for ourselves and for our own edification, but always for the edification of the whole. We pick up in verse 5. So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. I want you to notice here the um, the gift and the office. Primarily directed here to the ruling aspect of the eldership. He that ruleth, and then what is the instruction in the manner? With diligence. Spude in the Greek, which can mean everything from zeal or eagerness to diligence, properly speaking. And you can see the relationship between all of those things. The meaning would not be very much affected if you say, He that ruled, ruleth with eagerness or zeal or constancy or diligence. All very much to the same purpose. Officers are to be vigilant and watchful, diligent in the oversight of the flock. And uh, to the uh, officers present this morning, this is part of our right communion with the flock, is that we uh, exercise a diligent rule and that we remain watchful. Remember this image of the living creatures that are full of eyes watching the people. Some other passages. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 20. We pick up at uh, verse 28, but you remember the the scene. Paul is addressing the elders of the Ephesian churches. He is on his way to Jerusalem. And he has had solemn testimony that there he is going to be arrested. Paul has a final opportunity to address his brethren in the ministry. And so his words, he no doubt returns to those things that are most important, those things that must be kept in mind. Uh, just as you can imagine, if you had one last opportunity to address a person, how you would focus on those things that are of chief importance. Verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Notice this language of take heed. It's emphatic language. Give your attention. Pay attention to this. That you feed the church of God. It's very interesting here. He says, take heed unto yourselves. First, give some attention to yourself and your own spiritual condition, and also to the flock. Keep your eyes on these things. 
And one final text. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, verse 17. get the impression that uh, this is an important point in Paul's mind as he has spoken it to the Romans and the Ephesians and now the Colossians. <coughs> we could add others. Colossians 4.17 And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. You see the language here of take heed as well. This is actually a different Greek verb. For those of you that have been taking Greek, it is blepo. To see in the imperative. Look to the ministry. Look at it. Keep your eyes on it. Stay focused upon it to fulfill it. But it is the language of seeing or looking at something. The applications are apparent right on the surface of it. To the officers, let us be diligent, vigilant in the oversight of God's people as as one to give oversight that must give an account. You remember what Paul said to the Hebrews. Uh, we already read it this morning in 13.7 that they give that they are overseers who must give an account for the oversight that they render. similar thing is said to young Timothy, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Timothy is charged. And Paul calls God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge as witnesses of the charge. And then he uh, exhorts Timothy to his work. But the language of exhortation almost seems too weak, doesn't it? He presses him to it. He compels him to it. You must give an account. And I call God and Jesus Christ to witness that you will give an account on the day of the Lord's appearing in His kingdom. There's one other uh, application that as officers we must uh, make. Uh, Because uh, with uh, pastors and ruling elders, there is something of a division of labor. And I'm going to hear... uh, borrow the language of Revelation, but only really for memory purposes. I hope that you'll never forget it. If we were to look on balance, the ruling elder is to have perhaps a... um, And remember here, we're dealing with an economy. No creature has an infinite number of eyes. And so where is he to be directing his eyes? On balance in the scripture teaching, um, the ruling elder is to be a bit more directed toward the people have a bit more eyes engaged upon them. The minister is to have a bit more in the way of eyes engaged toward the throne for the purposes of teaching. We will come to this in our, in our sermon series on the doctrine of the church. But remember, the ruling elders are to, told in particular to rule with diligence. This is to be the principal place of their 
labor, the oversight of the flock. Now, of course, no ruling elder can even do that if he does not also have eyes steadfastly upon the throne. So this is not an either-or. This is an issue of the division of labor. For the pastor, the pastor is to have a few more eyes toward the throne in studying so that he might teach. Paul tells Timothy, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So you see that there's a a certain diligent application and rule for the ruling elders. And that's their principal field. And then there's a certain diligence in laboring in the word and doctrine, both learning and communicating, that belongs properly to the pastor. If you look at that word, it, perhaps it would be good to turn to 1 Timothy 5.17. Most of you are very familiar with this, uh, with this text. This is a text that has become very famous in the dispute over uh, how many different kinds of elders are there anyway. One, or two, or three. And this has become a very important proof text in that whole uh, debate. And we'll come to that in our sermon series on ecclesiology. But I want you to notice here that there's a certain sort of elder who labors Kopiao in the Greek is to labor with the idea of toiling even unto weariness. Now, as I said, men are not of infinite capacity. We don't have an infinite amount of time or strength. And the minister's primary field of work is to be toiling even unto weariness in the word and doctrine. Even as the even as the ruling elders uh, give themselves to the diligence <coughs> of the flock. In saying all of this, and as I was thinking about this, this is this is all um, this is all uh, very true doctrine. But in the presentation of it to you, I do not mean to justify my own practical errors in this regard. If you want a large testimony to this, you need go no further than uh, than my own wife. Uh, by natural habit and inclination, I am almost monkish. Uh, I am happiest when in retirement, and not because of a of a uh, a lack of love for God's people or a lack of love for any of you. I'll give you a story to illustrate it. Because when I heard this story, as it was told about uh, Dr. Young, I thought, that's such a picture of myself and my own inclinations. A friend of mine related to me that he was having a conversation with Dr. Young, who is now in his 90s, and he has been a lifelong bachelor and scholar. He has spent most of his time teaching in the university, uh, as well as laboring in the midst of of the church. And this friend was speaking to him about a practical family problem. And as he was describing the problem to Dr. Young, Dr. Young very quickly shot back a response. Well, why don't you just X? And then it'll work out. And then uh, my friend went on to explain why X wouldn't work. That it had already been tried. 
and failed, and there were 15 other practical considerations involved in this where that uh, mm-hmm. suggestion wouldn't work, would never work. And then Dr. Young tapped his chin and said, wow, that is a problem, isn't it? <laughs> and I frequently feel like this. I'm much more at home in wrestling through how to interpret uh, an aorist verb and the bearing that that might have upon theology than I am a lot of times in practical problems where I look at the problems and I think, wow, those are problems, aren't they? I'm not quite sure what to do. We need a practically-minded man, don't we? And I, I bring up this doctrine because I would say by, by way of my own repentance, I have frequently had uh, too many eyes toward the throne and not enough eyes uh, toward, um, toward the people of God. And um, I come to the table today seeking grace and strength for a, for a better balancing. I believe, the, uh, I believe the doctrine that I've just taught, that there is a certain appropriateness in it, but I cannot clear myself that I have been well balanced in this, uh, in this regard. I ask that you would uh, forgive me, but I come to the, to the table seeking the Lord's strength, even as you do, um, for, your, uh, for your own uh, wants and needs. Uh, to the congregation, by way of application, if the officers are going to give a, a diligent oversight, uh, pray, for their, <coughs> pray for their strength. It's, a, it's amazing. We are not a large group, but it's amazing the activity and energy that's necessary to even oversee such a small group. And um, by God's grace and power, uh, we do anticipate that the church will continue to grow and uh, the officers will need strength. And likely the church as a whole will need more strength uh, by way of officers at some point. But uh, strength we need indeed. We are limited vessels. But Christ is a source of inexhaustible strength. Well able to make a man exceed himself in his natural powers. But practically there's also something that you can do to help your Uh, officers in their oversight uh, communicate with them freely about yourselves. And that makes oversight a lot easier. It's hard to exercise oversight um, and sometimes not even appropriate to exercise oversight in areas where people prefer to remain private. You see... But uh, the more you communicate with the officers, they can exercise oversight in the light and according to knowledge and not by uh, guesswork. So uh, continue in the uh, work of developing your relationships with your officers. The table of the Lord is a good place to seek grace and strength for that uh, very thing. (coughs) And finally, I wanted to take a use Let us pray that God will grant unto the elders of the church insight into the condition of the congregation. Our text seems to imply this as well, in that the eyes are many. This seems to indicate not only a a diligence, but also a clear sight. They have good vision. They see well. 
And we must pray that God will grant unto the elders many eyes so that they might see the condition of the congregation as it really is. Not the way that they might hope it would be, but the way that it really is so that they might do the church good service. As I was thinking about the uh, components that give a man insight, uh, some things were readily apparent to me. Uh, No man's insight uh, will be worth anything if he's not a man well studied in the scriptures. We'll never see anything in this world rightly unless the light of God's word is being cast upon it. Unbelievers see, but they do not see truly. Unbelievers see, but they do not see with a spiritual eye and a spiritual sense and sensibility. Officers need to have their native blindness relieved, and that is only by the light of God's Word. So pray that they would have strength for their studies in the Scripture, and that God would afford them time for that uh, study. Also, if they're to have insight over the flock, they must be faithful in looking to the flock. And as we said, they must have strength for this endeavor. So in this way, pray that God will make your elders faithful in their work. But there's even more than that that's required. Pray that God will gift them and enlarge their gift. You see, many uh, men, uh, uh, many Christian men will be good students of the Word, and uh, they'll be paying attention. Uh, And yet, um, it really requires God's gift for a man to excel in the study of Scripture, and to be keen and insightful with respect to the (coughs) congregation, and then draw all of these things together so that he might have insight and know what to do. And that's a great gift of God. And so pray that the Lord would enlarge the gifts that he's given uh, to the officers so that they might see and know what to do. You know that I, I, I think it to be a great tragedy that the books of the Chronicles are so much neglected. In the roll call of David's army, we have this little record of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. The heads of them were 200, and so on. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. Notice what's said of these men. They had understanding of the times, they had a clear eyesight, and they knew what to do. And this is a great blessing to any people, both on the secular sphere as well as on the ecclesiastical sphere. And finally, all of this will be for naught apart from God's special blessing upon uh, their work. And I have known by experience that um, uh, that faithful officers uh, have uh, been blessed in situations where they were able to see, but because they were walking on in faithfulness, the Lord also blessed them in their activities in situations where they were not able to see. This was uh, this was very uh, strikingly uh, pointed out to me 
Tattersall's commentary on Numbers. He said that, uh, you remember that the Israelites were fighting enemies that were in front of them, enemies that they could see. And then uh, Balaam, the enemy that they can't see, is creeping around behind them. They see a physical enemy. They cannot see the spiritual enemy. Because, of course, we are finite creatures and we don't have infinite vision. And I suppose men that are fighting a war are very busy men indeed. We can't fault them for not seeing Balaam. Um, But the angel of the Lord was stationed as their rear guard and their protection. And we get further promises of that in the prophecy of Isaiah, that the Lord would be his people's rear guard. And so it has been, and I have noticed in the life of officers, they're dealing with a particular problem that's in front of them. They don't even see the problem that is creeping up behind them. And yet the Lord blesses all of their activity and brings it to a happy and a safe (coughs) conclusion. And this is the blessing of God that goes beyond faithfulness and beyond gifting. This is simply his blessing upon the work of his ministers and his elders as they seek to faithfully implement his word as the king and the head of the church. Let us pray together.